Great to see you all. Let's pray before we get underway. Our Heavenly Father, we know that your word is living and active and that it's sharper than any two-edged sword and it's able to divide us, to judge the thoughts of our hearts and our minds. And uh, so we pray that it might do that work in us tonight. We pray that where we need to be rebuked or challenged, your word will rebuke us and challenge us. And where we need to be encouraged, it will encourage us. But in all things, Father, we pray that we will sit humbly under your word this night. Amen. Often hear people say, well-meaning people, Christian people say that I I wish I was back in Jesus' time. You know, I wish I was there with the original disciples. You know, it's not enough to read it here in Mark's gospel. I, I I, I wish I was there when he was calming the storm. I wish he was there when he was saying these great things and all that sort of stuff. I think on the whole, when people say that, uh, with all due respect, they they don't really know what they're talking about. Uh, Because being a disciple of Jesus was a really, really scary business. And I can tell you, you wouldn't have wanted to be there. Uh, These words come up over and over again whenever things happen and the disciples are listening to Jesus or seeing these things happen. It says, they were astonished and they were afraid. It seems that for the three years that they followed Jesus around, they lived in a state of permanent fear, of permanently being unsettled, of permanently being afraid, because being a disciple of Jesus was a scary business. Just look, open up your passages. Mark, uh, we're in Mark's Gospel. The reading was just read for us from Mark 10. And just look at verse 32, the first verse in our passage tonight. And it says, They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, They were astonished, but those who followed him were afraid. Why were they astonished and afraid, do you think? Could be, if you remember last week's passage, it could be that he has just told them that the road to eternal life will involve losing friends and family. So if you remember last week, he said, if if you follow me, you, you may lose fathers, mothers, brothers, sisters, houses, everything. You may lose the lot if you follow me. And then when he comforts them, he says, but I tell you, you'll, you'll get a hundred times more. But even on the end of that, do you remember what he then said to them? You'll have a hundred times more mothers, brothers, sisters, fields, houses, and persecutions. So even when he's comforting them, he's saying, it's going to be tough if you follow me. That, that might be why they're afraid. It could be they've worked out, hang on, we're going to Jerusalem. And... Uh, Every time through Mark's gospel, when people have come to challenge Jesus, the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, all these people, where have they come from? They've come from Jerusalem. They've been sort of, the disciples and Jesus have been messing around up in Galilee in the north, but all the trouble has come from Jerusalem. And so now they go, hang on, this road, we're on the road to Jerusalem. Maybe we're sort of going into trouble here. That might be why they're afraid. Or it could just be that all the amazing things they were seeing Jesus do had put fear in them. If you think about it, if you were there on that boat when he calmed the storm, we read about it in the Bible and we go, isn't that wonderful? They were scared out of their minds when he cast hundreds of demons out of people. They, they were like, this is not normal. This is not comfortable for us. That might be why they were afraid. But whatever it was, the thing I love is that Jesus does absolutely nothing to calm their fear. So it says they were afraid in verse 32. And now he sees, oh, you're afraid. Let me tell you about something. Look at verse 33. He says, listen, we are going up to Jerusalem. The son of man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death. 
Then they will hand him over to the Gentiles and they will mock him, spit on him, flog him and kill him. And he will rise after three days. Now this is the third time that Jesus has made this prediction. So the first one was back in chapter 8. Do you remember that when Peter said, uh, Jesus, don't, don't, don't be silly, you're not going to die and, and that sort of thing. And what did Jesus say to him? Get behind me, Satan. He said, you, you don't understand, you don't have the mind of God. That was the first time. But each time he's told them, the first, the second, and now the third, he, he's given them the basic information. He said, this is what's going to happen to me when we get to Jerusalem. I'm going to be killed and then I will rise again three days later. But then each time he's introduced a sort of a different theme, a little bit more information. So the first time in, back in chapter 8 was just the basic information. I'm going to die and then I'll rise again. Then in chapter 9, he really focused on his betrayal. You might remember we, had it, we looked at it just around Christmas time. He really focused on the fact that Judas was going to betray him and, and hand him over to the authorities. And more than that, God himself was handing him over to these earthly authorities to be to be killed that was sort of the focus of the second time but now here he gives far more information about what will happen this is where he really tells them this is what's going to happen and the major focus here if you look there at the verses is that his rejection will be total it's not just the jews who are going to reject him he'll be condemned by the priests and the scribes his jewish enemies but then he says it's more than that the gentiles are going to join in too And it's the first hint we see that just as Jesus is the saviour of the whole world, it is the whole world who rejects him. It is Jew and Gentile, it is people from every nation, if you like, who reject him, just as it is every nation who he dies to save. But the other focus here is on the depths of the humiliation and the depths of the suffering he's going to face. Jesus didn't just die. I don't know if you've ever noticed this when you read through at the end of all four of the Gospels when it talks about Jesus' death. You know how it takes like three or four chapters in each of them to go through his death. But his actual death is just like a verse. The focus as you go through it is on all the awful things they did to him. It's on the humiliation. It's on the way he was mocked, spat on, flogged. He was humiliated and that's what he focuses on here. He's describing for them, these are the depths I'm going to suffer. I'm not just going to die, I'm going to be mocked, I'm going to be spat on, I'm going to be made fun of, I'm going to be humiliated. Now, at this point, the disciples still didn't get it. And sometimes we sort of make jokes about disciples, I do it from here, I sort of say, you know, how slow do they have to be? You know, he's told them three times and they still don't get it. And then when he does rise from the dead, they're surprised. And it's like, why didn't you tell us, Jesus, sort of thing. But we've got to understand, how could they have got it? Again, this is, we've got the benefit of the the rest of the story. We've got the benefit of the explanation already. For them, the idea that the Son of Man, that is the one promised in the Old Testament who God would give all authority and all power and all glory to, the idea that he would be spat on and that he wouldn't then just wipe people out and that he would be mocked and that he would let himself be killed, that was just so out there that they just couldn't contemplate it. It was so beyond the realms of what they could understand that they just couldn't get it. It's only later after it happened that all of these things Jesus said came back to them and they said now we understand it now we get it and they could see what he's talking about we have such a better view than them 
Because we know, as he says this, that all of that suffering, all of that humiliation was for us. We know that Jesus is telling them the gospel at this point. He's telling them the most wonderful news ever, that he would die for their sins. And then after that, that he would rise to offer the hope of eternal life. But at this point, unlike us, they just weren't ready to understand it yet. And as if to confirm that, to show how little they understood, we have this next little incident. If you look at verse 35, it starts with the word then. That is, while these words about Jesus' imminent suffering are hanging in the air, James and John think it's a really good time to bring up something that's been on their mind. Have you ever had one of those moments where you speak and then you just think, where is the rewind button? I want to pull those words back. I sometimes have them from here as I'm preaching. Because here at Church in the Bank, not that we're in the bank, you know what I mean. Here, I don't have Victoria to have this look on her face that says, Phil, you're going too far. I don't have that here. So sometimes I get carried away and then I think, why did I say that? Why did I share that thing about it? Anyway, I sometimes have that moment. I think James and John had it here. Because it seems that as Jesus tells them, we're going to Jerusalem and then we're going to die and I'm going to die and all that. It seems all they hear is, we're going to Jerusalem. And they get excited because they know Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Christ. And the whole Old Testament says that Jerusalem is his city. And Jerusalem is where he will sit on the throne and rule the world. That is where he will rule from. So it seems like they're dreaming. Maybe Jesus is about to get put on his throne. Maybe finally people are going to see Jesus for who he is once and for all. Maybe he's about to receive the glory he's meant to receive. So they sidle over, if you look there, and they say, Jesus, when you're glorified, when you're sitting on your throne and when people recognize you, when that happens, can we get the best seats? Can, can I be on your right and my brother be on your left? That's all we want. We don't want to sit on the throne with you. We, we just want to be right and left. We just want to be your right and left-hand man. Can we have the positions of glory? It is a very, very human request. They were just normal human beings. Don't be too quick to judge them. They were ambitious. They were proud. They're the things our world tells us to be. Many of you are at uni or have recently left school or at school and you're told, be ambitious, do your best. You know, well, that's all they're trying to do. They're trying to be ambitious. We want to be great in your kingdom. Don't be too quick to judge them without asking if we'd be any different. And it seems that Jesus is very understanding here. I even think Peter at this point must have sort of said, hang on, when I said something after you said you were going to die, you called me Satan and said, get behind me, Satan. These guys you treat nicely and you say, it's okay, James and John, let me tell you a little lesson. But that's what Jesus does here. He, he doesn't rebuke them, he doesn't challenge them like that. Instead, he just takes the opportunity to begin to teach them something incredibly important and incredibly profound. Look at verse 38. But Jesus said to them, you don't know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup I drink or to be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? It's a bit cryptic, isn't it? What was he talking about? Well, back in the Old Testament, the prophets talked about the cup of God's wrath. And they talked about how the nation of Israel for its sin would have to drink the cup of God's wrath right to the dregs. So to drink the cup of God is to face the wrath of God, to face the anger of God, to take the punishment of God for human sin. You see, Jesus is saying, that's the cup I'm going to drink. 
And I'm going to drink it alone. You're not going to drink it with me. That is when I take the punishment for all of human sin. In the same way Jesus talked about his death as his baptism. When we baptise someone up the front here, it's a wonderful occasion, isn't it? You know, we, we think it's beautiful. It's, it's, a, it's them being born again. But before you're born again, you die. So Jesus says, I'm going to die. That's the baptism I'm facing. It's not going to be some wonderful celebration. It's going to be the spilling of my blood. He says, that is what my death is, my baptism. See, if you want to share in my glory then you'll need to come and hang on a cross outside Jerusalem with me. This is the incredible paradox that is the heart of the gospel and is the essence of Christianity and makes what Jesus says and what he did different to any other philosophy or any other religion and it makes them all meaningless. Where is Jesus's most glorious moment? It's not sitting in heaven at his father's right hand where does he show the glory of God most incredibly he shows it when he hangs on a cross taking the punishment that we deserve see it wasn't sitting on a throne with people on his left and on his right it was hanging on a cross with criminals on his left and on his right because that's when he shows the amazing love and the amazing grace of God more than at any other point by drinking the cup we were meant to drink, by taking the punishment of God that our sin deserves. Jesus is trying to gently say to James and John, when you ask me that question, can I be by your side in your glory, you don't know what you're asking for because you can't go to the cross with me. But in their naivety, they assure Jesus, if you look there, they say, no, no, we can, we can take it. Whatever happens, they're a bit like Peter, you know, Peter later on when he says, I'll never deny you, Jesus. And then what happens within 24 hours? He denies Jesus. Well, here they're the same. No, 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 we can do it. We can can be with you. And so Jesus gently tells him, he says, do you know what? You will. You will get to suffer for me. You will drink the cup. You will have the same baptism as me. And what he's talking about is that both of these men would suffer terribly after his death and resurrection. James, the one who's here asking the question, was the first of the 12 killed, other than Judas, who was killed for other reasons. James was the first one killed for his faith. He had a sword run through him for preaching Jesus, that he had risen from the dead. John lived out his life in prison. He lived the rest of his life as a prisoner because he wouldn't say that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. When Jesus went to the cross, he went alone deserted by everyone but afterwards his disciples would have the joy and the privilege of suffering for him but at this point we switch to the other disciples come to verse 41 because when the other 10 get wind of what James and John have asked they aren't happy so look at verse 41 when the other 10 disciples heard this they began to be indignant with James and John you don't get told this here but I imagine that this is self-righteous indignation from the other ones they probably said I cannot believe that you would ever ask a question like that I would never ask a question like that. I can't believe that you would be so selfish and arrogant when Jesus just talked about his death and now here you are asking can we be at your right and left on your throne but deep down they're just je- jealous it's more like how dare you ask that when I should have that spot and I imagine Peter sort of thinking hang on I'm the rock Jesus calls me the rock. Surely if anyone gets to sit there, it'll be me. 
I'm the number one disciple. I'm the leader of the disciples. And all the others would have come up with their rationales of why they had given up more for the gospel than anyone else. They all would have had reasons why I deserve the glory more than anyone else. Because that's what we do. That's what sinful human beings do. It's sinful human nature to desire glory, to desire the special seat on the platform, to desire to be served rather than to be the servant. And so Jesus calls them all over, not just James and John now, but all of them. And he shares this teaching that is at the very centre of what it is to be a Christian. So look from verse 42. Jesus called them over and said to them, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles dominate them and their men of high positions exercise power over them. He's saying, I don't need to teach you this. That's just the way the world works. In the world, when you get authority, it's so that you're above other people. So if you're number one, it's so that other people will serve you. That's the way the world works. Uh, The great ones in the world are the ones on top, the ones other people serve. But not us, he says. Look at verse 43. But it must not be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be a slave to all. Now just pause here. Please don't let this wash over you because of familiarity. You know this passage. I can tell you why you know it. Because I've been minister here for 12 years and I reckon I've spoken on this passage about 12 or 13 times. Because every time I want to talk about what is church about, what passage do I go to? Mark chapter 10. And every time I want to talk about what we, what we should be doing with our lives, where do I go? I go to Mark chapter 10. And when you come to a newcomer's or a welcome afternoon tea or supper, what passage do I read out for everyone? Mark chapter 10. If you don't know this, if this is the first time you've heard this passage, I don't know where you've been. Unless it's your first time with us tonight, in which case, welcome. But... And what I normally do at this point, at the uh, welcome afternoon tea, is I read this passage out and then I hand over to Troy. And Troy gives you a bit of paper that says, I'd like to serve by reading the Bible at church. Or I'd like to serve by putting out the chairs at church. Or by helping on the sound desk. Or by running the PowerPoint. Or by doing all those other great things that we talk about. But if that's all we got from this... We've got to say that, that's important and we do that for a reason and that is everyone should serve in church. But if that's all you've got, ah, oh, Jesus said serve, so where's the packing up roster? I'll sign up. That is not what this is about. This is the most radical thought shift that has ever been preached. That's what this is about. This is the most out there claim on humanity that has ever been spoken. Jesus is saying greatness in the kingdom of God is totally different to greatness in the world. Jesus is saying the great one in God's eyes is the voluntary servant. That is who is the great one in God's eyes. The great one in God's eyes is the person who gives up everything to serve other people. The great one is the one who says, I'm not interested in glory. I don't care what anyone else thinks about me. I don't care whether anyone's watching me. I will just get on with the job of serving others, no matter what it costs me. Humble, self-sacrificial service. 
That is greatness. That is glory in God's eyes. And that is what Jesus wants to see in us, in his followers. That's what he wants to see in his church. Servants. He wants to see people stacking chairs. That's part of serving. But it's more than that. It's this incredibly profound attitude shift that you only get when you understand the gospel and come to know Jesus. Where we serve one another like Jesus first served us. And why do we do it? I just said it, didn't I? Because that is what Jesus did for us. Jesus doesn't say, the mark of my followers is that they serve. He doesn't say that. He doesn't just say, do as I say. He says, do as I do. And that's why verse 45 is so amazing. One of those great verses. Just look at verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Now, as I said before, I know you know this verse. I know you can even quote this verse. It's a famous verse and I quote it at you all the time. And because we already know it, we lose the power of it. See, if I ask you, tell me about Jesus. Tell me what you know about Jesus. People go, Jesus is a servant. Jesus, even people who aren't Christians know this. Jesus is the servant king. We sing songs about all the time. Jesus loves us. That's, that's what Jesus is sort of meant to do. That's not right. He's not meant to do that. You see, we've got to try and put on fresh eyes for a minute. And understand this, how they would have understood it. When he said the son of man, that is that title from the Old Testament. It comes from Daniel chapter 7. If you want your mind blown, go home later tonight and read Daniel 7. It is the most glorious picture. And it is this picture of this one like a son of man. Who goes on the clouds at the end of time to the ancient of days. That is God himself. And he goes there and God says, I am going to give you all power and all glory and all authority and all dominion and you will have it forever. That's the son of man. The the son of man, when we put the teaching of the whole Bible together, is the one who is both God and man. He is the second person of the Trinity. And Jesus is saying, that is who I am. I am the one who has all power and all authority And I have come into the world. And so what should happen by rights? The son of man should be served. As soon as he comes, we should drop to their knees and worship him. Everyone should honor him and glorify him and give him all the respect and all the worship that they can give. But look at verse 45 again with that picture in your mind. And he says, but even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve. See, because we're so familiar with Jesus, we lose sight of just how radical what he did and who he is, is. The king, the man who is God, did not come to be served, but to serve. We take it for granted when it's earth shattering. And his greatest act of service, it's there at the end of verse 45, where it says he gave his life as what? A ransom for many. If they'd had ears to hear, this is where they would have understood what he was talking about when he told them he was going to die. When I die, what I'm doing is paying the ransom price. You are slaves to sin. All of humanity are slaves to sin. And Jesus says, but I am paying to set you free. I'm paying the price for the sin 
of all of humanity. We must get this right. The essence of Christianity is not that we serve Jesus. It's that he came to serve us. That is the essence of the Christian gospel. We are the served before we are the servants. And he served us most profoundly by dying so that we do not have to face the judgment of God. What a great passage for us to start the year with, isn't it? What a great way to sort of recalibrate as we begin the year. Even though it's the end of January, I always sort of think of the church year as starting now. 31st of January, we're starting gospel teams this week, we're going to be praying together during the week. But one of the facets of our church mission statement is that we glorify God by serving together. That's one of the things we're on about as a church. And I think this passage more than any other speaks to that, doesn't it? Don't we want to be a church? Don't you want to be an individual Christian? But together, don't we want to be a church where people look at us and say, they serve one another. They follow Christ. They live like Jesus. And so at this point, I want to ask you, how are you serving this year? How are you serving this year? And there's all sorts of ways you can serve. I mentioned some of them before. You can serve by setting up chairs. That's important. You can serve by operating PowerPoint. You can be in the music team. You can do all sorts of things. You can lead kids' church. You can teach scripture. You can be on parish council. Well, you have to be elected to do that. But anyway, you've, there's all sorts of ways you can serve. So I want to ask you, now is a good time to reevaluate and say, well, how am I serving? How am I using the gifts God has given to serve? Do I really serve in a meaningful way or am I more the served rather than the servant in my church? It's worth asking and evaluating. But if the response to tonight was that five people filled in their feedback slips and said, I want to help operate PowerPoint. If that was the response, that'd be nice. It'd be good for Natani, he'd have a night off and, you know, that sort of thing. But if that was the response, I would be incredibly disappointed because we've missed the point. Because that's sort of like a follow-on application what this is about at its heart is about a fundamental attitude shift that is at the very heart of becoming a christian an attitude shift where we become like our lord jesus says i want you to have an attitude like me an attitude that says i am willing to give up everything to serve others see an attitude that says i am willing to give up my rights for your good Another word for this is love. Serving or ministry, really just another word for love. Look on your outline. Uh, and this is John in his gospel, which is a bit interesting, isn't it? Because he was one of the guys who asked Jesus, can I be the greatest? And what did Jesus say about his followers in John's gospel? He said this, he said, I give you a new command. Love one another. Just as I have loved you, you must also love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That is what we want, isn't it? If you're a part of our church, that is what we want for our church, isn't it? We want to be a community of people who genuinely love one another. And you see that in service. You see that in people who say, I don't want you to serve me. I want to serve you. See, we want people to look at our church and see people who are devoted to loving one another. That's what we want. And that will just express itself in humble service. Look at how John picks up that theme in his letter, 1 John 3.16. And I wonder if, as he was writing it, 
if he didn't sort of sheepishly have in mind the question he asked Jesus that day. He said, this is how we have come to know love. He laid down his life for us. We should also lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need but closes his eyes to his need, how can God's love reside in him? See, John is saying to us, being a follower of Jesus is massive. When we talk about serving, yes, that means mowing lawns and it means teaching scripture and it means being on parish council, but more fundamental than that, it means being a church where we genuinely know and care for each other and where we say, I want you to grow in your knowledge and love of Jesus. That's what we want to be, where people are willing to do anything for one another, to care for one another, to build one another up. That is true greatness. When it's talking there about the one who is great, when it's talking there about the greatest one in the kingdom of God, who is that one? Who is the one who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? It's Jesus, isn't it? Jesus is the greatest one because he is the one who gave up his life for his enemies. That's what he has done for us. And so now this passage says, will you follow me? Will you do the same? Will you be like our Lord? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus, who was willing to give up his life for us, who even though he deserved to be served, was ready to give up everything to serve us who didn't deserve it. And so, Father, we pray that every person here tonight might know Jesus. And because of that, we pray that you might give us a heart that does not look to push ourselves forward, that does not ask, can we have the best seat in the house? But instead asks, how can I be like my Lord? How can I serve? How can I give up myself for others? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.